Welcome to the MPC Podcast. I am Tim W. Gill, pastor of Medora Pentecostal Church, and I'm thrilled that you've joined us today. Here at MPC, we are committed to bringing hope and building lives. One way we do that is through this podcast. Thank you for listening, for sharing and reviewing what we do here. It is our desire to connect with you, and you can find us on Facebook, or you can find us at our website, medorachurch.com. It is our prayer that today's message inspires you, encourages you, and that the kingdom of God is advanced in your life. Let's get right to the word of the Lord today. Isn't it good to be here? I'm glad to see all of y'all in the house of the Lord today. Thank the Lord. We're going to turn to the book of Deuteronomy this morning, reading one verse of scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. A very important and very familiar verse of scripture. Let's read it together, okay? Here... O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. God, we thank you to realize that you are awesome, that you are God. You're the great I am. We're so glad to be able to gather here today open up your word one more time. We pray for anointing. We pray for inspiration and understanding in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. This verse is called the, uh, the great Shema. It's the prayer of Israel. Rabbi Copland translated this verse. Listen, Israel, God is our Lord. God is one. Monotheism is what is called teaching of one God in the Old Testament throughout the era of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They were brought out. Abraham was brought out among, from among an idolatrous, uh, idolatrous country of Ur, of the Chaldeans. And given the uh, promise of the Lord being with him, and he walked by faith, he was uniquely different because all of his people worshiped different kinds of gods. And here come this man by the name of Abraham, at that time called Abram, and he began to worship. He said, there's one God. You're one God. Where is your God? He's everywhere. He's everywhere. Unlike their neighbors, his neighbors, they had their God sitting on pedestals throughout their house or different places. If they had a place of worship, such as Baal or Baal, as some pronounce it, uh, there was a statue such as Dagon. Remember that, that feller? Dagon was a God. They wanted a God they could see, a God they could look at when they prayed. And here we are worshiping God you can't see. But we feel him. We feel him. And one day we shall see him. This is called the Shema, Shema, 
Shema Israel or the Shema is the central affirmation of Judaism. The prayer expresses belief in the singularity of God, that is, in God's oneness, in incomparability. It is traditionally recited twice a day as part of the morning and evening services. It serves as the climax of the liturgy on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish new, uh, year. Jews often recite the prayer, we are told, in their dying words, including the Jewish martyrs that throughout the ages made their final profession of faith before being uh, put to death, which to me is awesome. As they met their death, they would say here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Professor in classic, uh, classical rabbinic literature, Reuben Kimbleman, said the Shema summons Jews to feel an all-consuming love of God. He wrote, it's a love that is unreserved, all-demanding at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances. He said nothing is excluded. Thoughts are to be focused, words are to be spoken, and deeds are to be done. The great Shema. The prayer dates, as one historian put it, from the first millennium B.C., before Christ era, when it was recited as part of regular services in the ancient temple in Jerusalem. It consists of three separate passages taken from the Hebrew Bible, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, and also in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 21, and one other place in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 37 through 41. We have the occasion in our Bible, in our New Testament, when Jesus was approached by some of his critics and that were trying to catch him in his dogma, his teachings. And in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, we read, One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now there's something to me at least, and when I got to looking at this uh, scripture, and by the way, let me, let me be a little transparent here. When pastor asked me to talk this morning, I thought, now look at there. Back there in my office, I've got hundreds of messages already typed out. Already, all I had to do is just say, any, many, many. I had, you know, hunt, there's, hunt, there's stacks of them, folks, back there. So, because I've been around a long time, as you know. But anyway, anyway and I, I had one. I even had one in mind, and then, then I got to thinking, I believe it was inspiration. And I got to thinking about this. Deuteronomy 6 and 4. 
Where better place to start? What better verse to teach on? What better passage of scripture to, uh, to illuminate a little bit in our minds? But when I got to, I wasn't aware of this until I got to studying this. There's only two places in our Bible that this passage is, is quoted or is recorded. Only two in the whole Bible. Here in Mark uh, chapter uh, 12, verse 29, where Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What is the, which is the first commandment? That's it, which is the first commandment? In Matthew, I think it's 22, uh, Matthew recorded the scribe saying, which is the greatest commandment? Yeah, which is the greatest commandment? And Matthew recorded, he didn't record this. He recorded, you know, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and so on. But in Mark here, when it, which is the first commandment? And the first of all commandments. It's not the first one in the Ten Commandments. It's the one before that. What is the first commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And that's one place in the New Testament. And then we already read the other one in the book of, of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. But here, the, the most important verse to all Jewry is only found two times. But again, once is sufficient. Acts 2.30, it's only found one time in the Bible. And that's sufficient for salvation. I... One of the commentators I like to look at at times is Adam Clark, an old recorded commentary, ooh, I don't know, over 100 years old, uh, well over 100, I guess. But anyway, I like what he had to say, and I want to share it with you. Adam Clark said, this is the first and great commandment. It is so, number one, in its antiquity being as old as the world and engraven originally on, on our very nature. Number two, in dignity, as directly and immediately proceeding from and referring to God. Number three, in excellence, being the commandment of the new covenant and the very spirit of the divine adoption. Number four, in justice, because it alone renders to God his due, prefers him before all things, and secures to him his proper rank in relation to them. Number five, insufficiency, being in itself capable of making men holy in this life and happy in the other. And number six, in fruitfulness, because it is the root of all commandments, and the fulfilling of the law. Number seven, in virtue and efficacy, because by this alone, God reigns in the heart of man, and man is united to God. Number eight, in extent, leaving nothing to the creature, which it does not refer to, not to the, uh, which it does not refer to the creator. Number nine, in necessity, being absolutely indispensable. I like that. And then 10, in duration, being ever to be continued on earth 
and never to be discontinued in heaven. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. I'm going to do something different here today. Uh, I think about this, this subject of one God that is so debated, so argued, and uh, so uh, neglected, and so refused to be accepted by the majority of the religious world. I met with some friends this past week to discuss the Bible with them, and I made the mention, of, mention to them about, we were talking about Martin Luther, and I mentioned to them something I've said more times than three or four. Martin Luther was wise to leave the Catholic Church. He stepped away from the Catholic Church, nailed his thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. But I said what he did. The problem was he stepped away. He just didn't step far enough. He brought the dogma of the Trinity with him. And this is the one of the most familiar and prominent teachings in the religious world, of course, today is the dogma of the Trinity. The Trinity, which we plainly, flatly deny. There is but one God. There is but one God. Now they, in their confusion, they want to say it's one God, but three persons. Three persons. You know, some of y'all know I like to sing the song, He's the Great I Am, the Everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace, the Great Eternal Wonder, Holy Counselor. He's Zion's Righteous Governor. He's the Great, He's the Great I Am. Well, I got to thinking. How would a Trinitarian sing it? They're the great Trinity, the everlasting trio. They are the givers of peace. They're an eternal wonder, holy counselors. They're Zion's righteous governors. They are the great they are the great we are's. <laughs> Carrie, would you come and help me sing that? <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> but, you know, if, if we're going to be, I know it sounds like I'm making fun. I guess I am. But uh, I rather think it as correcting, correcting that which is false. Amen. I got to thinking, sitting right over there a while ago and in my office as well, but the dogma of the Trinity is a, uh, and I wish I could pull the right words out of the air and, and, and say it like it would be most impressive, but the dogma of the Trinity is an abasement to the name of Jesus Christ. The dogma of the Trinity is a slam against and a degradation, a dis disparagement to the name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. It's saying to Jesus, you're one of three. Jesus said, I am. He didn't say we am, <laughs> but he said, I am. I am. I am. But anyway, let me get on to what I started to say. Uh, in thinking about and what I felt in my spirit today, uh, there is a uh, commentator that I use quite frequently because he is, he's very sharp and comes up with a lot of things, and I need sharpness. Uh, but anyway, I quote in my uh, commentaries, probably every one of them just about. But anyway, I want to share some, because he's a Trinitarian. Let me put that, add that to it. He's a Trinitarian. So I got this big idea in my little mind. I want to share with you what he has to say about Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. I'm not going to call his name because he might be your great uncle. I don't know, but I don't think so. But anyway, he comments on Deuteronomy 6 and 4. And by the way, I'm working on Deuteronomy right now. And so this is why one thing is fresh in my mind. But listen to what he said. In the mind of many Jewish people, this verse alone disqualified the New Testament teaching that Jesus is God and the New Testament teaching of the Trinity, that there is one God existing in three persons. At, at, at some times and places, as Jewish synagogues said the Shema together, and when the word ekad, that's the word for one in the, New Test, in the Old Testament, the word ekad uh, was said, they loudly and strongly repeated that one word for several minutes, minutes as if it were a rebuke to Christians who believed in the Trinity. That's what they, well, that was his comments. I thought, you poor, ignorant fool. You know, there, there's such a thing as being educated and then there's such a thing as being intelligent. And there's a lot of people that are educated, but they sure are ignorant and not intelligent. Am I being too negative here? Anyway, anyway, most of you are not here anyway, so. But, but anyway, uh, listen to this fella. And, and, let, and I'm... I went through his comments. I'm going to have them all through here for the next 20 minutes or so, something like that. And, and then I'm, I'm, this is my response. This is my argument. This is Bible argument for, their, for his presentation. And, and here he spoke about how that the Jews at their synagogues, when they would say Shema together, they used this, when they came to this one word, one, they would strongly repeat it several minutes as if a rebuke to Christians who believed in the Trinity. And I thought, Mr. Commentator, why don't you stop and think about what you're saying? Because strongly repeating the Echad, one, one, was not in dispute of the Trinity. It was no doubt to emphasize what the Jews had been taught since Abraham 
and especially since Deuteronomy 6 and 4, that to them there is but one God, and they worshiped that one God. But another thing that, that just knocks the props out from under his argument, the Jews had been evidently practicing this for years, centuries. The church, the church was not born until after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. If the cry of the Jews was as he states, then it would not have been against the church because of their belief, belief in a trinity, because, of course, to begin with, the church doesn't believe in a trinity. But in fact, such a word is never employed in any of the New Testament epistles. The word trinity is not there. You can't even find the word trinity until many years after the apostles come on the scene, unless you look into the pagan world. But anyway... The idea that they, they quoted this statement, the echad, over and over and over so loudly as to uh, disparage the people out there that were denying the Trinity, or rather, excuse me, were worshiping the Trinity, that's what he was saying, is so far-fetched because the church was not even born yet. Paul plainly says in the book of Colossians 2, Verses 8 and 9, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit and the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. So Paul's warning to the church at Colossae to beware of those teaching things philosophically. The subject of the Godhead is not one to be determined by the likes of Greek philosophy, such as a Socrates or those other kind of fellers, or like those that we read about even in the book of Acts chapter 17. Remember the occasion when Paul was stranded, as it were, or waited there uh, in Athens for uh, Timothy and others to come. The Bible reads in verse 16 of chapter 17 of Acts, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city, wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. They, and then certain philosophers, Paul, remember, said, watch out for those philosophers. The certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this blabbler, babbler say? I think that's what they say about us, those Trinitarians. What will this babbler say? Other, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. No, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. In verse 19, they took him, and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. 
For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorant worship. Notice what Paul says. Him, not them, but him declare I unto you. I think Paul was a one God Jesus name preacher. Paul, he also said that the Colossians statement concerning and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The, in in uh, Christendom, in the religious world, the greatest deceit, I think, the greatest deceit is the teaching of the Trinity because it takes away recognition of God, recognition of Jesus Christ, recognition of who he is and what he is. They want to separate him. They want to make him the second person of the Godhead, which, of course, he's not in the Godhead, never was, never will be. He's not in the Godhead. Colossians 1 tells us that he, the Godhead, Colossians 2 rather in verse 9, says he's, the Godhead is in him. He's not in it. The Godhead is in him. It's all in him. So I think that's M.L. Walls, one of the, if not the greatest deceit that's been given and accepted by the religious world is the dogma of the Trinity. A dogma that, of course, is not found in the Word of God anywhere, which was evidently, I think, evidently <laughs> borrowed from the pagan world because the pagan world has had their trinity from the time of Genesis. Probably the first trinity was uh, Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. That was probably the original trinity of the heathen world. Uh, the idolatrous world. But anyway, when Constantine and the Romish religious leaders ad ad adopted this to influence the pagans and which was forced upon uh, believers during the Dark Ages following 325 A.D. when they had that first council together to try to determine who Jesus is, the religious world has was ushered then into what's called the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition that resulted in millions, millions of one God people losing their life because they refused the dogma of, of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church, I could talk a little while and get on a soapbox about that high, about the awful hideous, dirty, ungodly religion of Rome. Mm. Did I say that good enough? Jesus, here's something that was very interesting, been interesting to me for quite some time. In the book of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gave three, seven, excuse me, seven 
called Parables or Seven Mysteries. And it's very interesting. I know the Bible uh, was separated into chapters and verses long after the last apostle died. It didn't happen until the second century when they separated the Bible into chapters and verses. But it's so uniquely interesting in the book of, of all places, in the book of Matthew and of all places, chapter 13 and verse 33. Isn't that something unique? The Bible, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a woman which took leaven and hid it in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. When you're reading the scriptures and, and you come upon a reference to a woman, and I say this in all honor, my wife was a woman, in uh, respect, but if it's in relation to religious, in religion in any way, it's always referring to a false religious system. A false, a false. You know, the church is known, we're, we're a woman. We're a bride. We're going to have a marriage after a while. Amen. But there is a false religious system out there, and she's referred to as a woman. She's referred to as the mother harlot, mother of harlots. She's a mama, but she's a mother of harlots. She's the head of idolatry. But anyway, it's so interesting that Jesus, uh, it's recorded there in Matthew 13 and verse 33, which a woman took leaven, which is, un, which is false doctrine, Matthew 16, where Jesus said to his apostles, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They thought he said that because they didn't bring any bread with them. And finally the Lord said, no, it's doctrine I'm talking about. The doctrine of the Pharisees. But anyway, the, the, the Jezebel of Elijah's time, she was the head of the worship of Baal, idolatry. There is a Jezebel, as you know, in the book of Revelation chapter 2, that was as well. The Bible says uh, in chapter 2, verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols." It was the church of Rome, again, that big, Peter wasn't the first pope. They didn't have popes. There was, well, to begin with, the, the Catholic church didn't exist then. And actually, it had its beginning in 325 AD when they gathered there at Nicaea to discuss the issue of who Jesus is and what role he plays in the religious kingdom, if you will, of Christendom. And even after that, it was years later. It was not until much later they finally nailed it all down and said, we got a trinity now. And that's what we're going to start teaching. But anyway, it was the Church of Rome that introduced the trinity and the triune formula of baptism into the religious system. And this is, this is even pointed out by historians that this is not M.L. Walls. This is uh, right there is the Britannical Encyclopedia. If you want to check it out, that's the old edition, 11th edition of about way back under. That's over 100 years old. But I haven't had it that long, but it's. <laughs> but anyway, I happened to find one one time, so I bought it. But anyway, the, the, this, this right here, you'll find, if you want to read it, I got it tagged there so you can read it if you want to. 
It reads, the baptismal formula was changed from the name of Jesus Christ to the words Father, Son, and Holy Ghost by the Catholic Church in the third century. I think they're wrong there, but that's me. The triune and trinity formula was not uniformly used from the beginning. And up until the third century, baptism in the name of Christ only was so widespread that Pope Stephen, and I don't believe that either because Pope wasn't around there in that time, in opposition to St. Cyprian, but that's the writing of that historian, that said that baptism in the name of Christ was valid. We gather from the Acts that John had merely baptized in the name of the coming Messiah without identifying him with Jesus of Nazareth. The apostolic age supplied this identification and the normal use during it seems to have been into Christ Jesus or in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, simply are of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's, here's a historian that put together, I don't know who all is involved, put together the Britannical Encyclopedia and they are looking at it strictly from a historical point. It's not a religion they're looking at. It's a historical fact, and that's what they said. If you looked at the Caney Encyclopedia, which I don't have, the early church always baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus until the development of the Trinity doctrine in the third century. They keep saying the third century. I think they're, I'm confused too, you know, I, I say this is the so-and-so century. It's always, you know, like the 19th century, Began in the 19th century, didn't it? Well, you all say, man, you're as confused as I am. But, but when you say second century, you're talking about from 100 A.D. to 200 A.D. That's the second century. But the third century is from 200, I say A.D., B.C. The third century begins with 200 B.C. to 300 B.C., and then the fourth century begins with 300 to 400. And that, that is when it all started in the fourth century, not the second. Although the dogma of the Trinity like Tertullian that lived during that second century or third century uh, began to talk about it, but they didn't put it into this. Am I making sense? All right. Even the, even the Catholic Encyclopedia, I'm reading from the Catholic Encyclopedia, volume 2, page 263, the Catholics acknowledge that baptism was changed by the Catholic Church. Isn't that something? Now, Paul clearly, Paul clearly and plainly informs us in chapter 2 of Colossians and verse 9 that in him, for in him, not in them, in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul never employed the term Trinity, which again, it, it, it's, I wouldn't want to be a Trinitarian. Well, I'm not. But, you know, I, I, no wonder when I read about what they say and how they try to explain that they are so flabbergasted. They believe it because their seminarian professor taught it. And that professor taught it from his professor or whatever. And it all dates back, the Lutherans to Luther, the Methodists to Wesley, and, and the so-called Church of Christ back to the Camelites 
and so on. And, and the whole Trinitarian dogma teaching of the whole religious system goes back to Rome. That's where it all started with them. And it's flooded that woman. She took that leaven, false doctrine, hid it into three measures of meal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and leavened the whole thing. And said, we got, a God, we got a Godhead that consists of three persons, hogwash. We have a Godhead that's in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me read some more about, about this commentator, this Trinitarian friend of mine. He doesn't know I'm his friend or he's my friend. But anyway, he wrote this. Christians, <laughs> he wrote this. Christians must come to a renewed understanding of the unity of God. They must appreciate the fact that the Lord is one, not three, as 1 Corinthians 8 and 6 says, yet for us there is one God. Of course, they're going to say three persons. Well, let me say this to my friend. First of all, I would inquire I would ask him the term unity of God. Where is that found? What chapter verse did he find? There is no such thing. Unity of God. <laughs> unity of God is not there. The word unity, it is found. It's found in three places. Oh, my goodness. It ain't interesting. It's found three places in your Bible. First of all, it's found in Psalms 133, where it's how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Uh-huh. It's found in, in uh, uh, two times in Ephesians chapter 4. It's speaking of the unity of the spirit, and it's speaking of unity of the faith. That's talking about us fellowship. We're in unity here. We all believe in Jesus' name baptism, don't we? We all believe in one God, don't we? We all believe MPC is a great church, don't we? We're in unity, folks. That's unity. But there's not three persons sitting somewhere and saying, let's all agree together. One of the comical things about, and I've read this, that, that they had this, they had this uh, conference Way back under, even before they created man or during that time, these three created man. <clears throat> uh -huh. And said so they had this get together. And so one of these days, one of us is going to have to go and die for all these people, all these sinners. And so we're going to have to decide which one of us is going to do that. Believe it, that's, I'm not pulling that out of my, my head. They, that, that is taught and I've read it. Among, from one of their prominent Trinitarian priests. Isn't that stupid? Isn't that stupid? They say the Trinity is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. I don't see any co-equality there. Amen. I got to go. Uh, he, he goes on to say, this, this friend, we worship one God existing in three persons, not three separate gods. Again, there is no such expression as persons, three or otherwise, in the word of God relative to the subject of God. Or the God uh, and he, like all Trinitarians, insert a phrase 
of their, in their support of their erroneous dogma that's not found in the Word of God. There's no such thing in this book like triune, trinity, first person, second person, third person, three persons. Nowhere is that found in the Word of God. Our friend goes on to say, yet the statement the Lord is one certainly, listen to this, certainly does not contradict the truth of the Trinity. Oh. In fact, it establishes that truth. Oh my goodness. The Hebrew word for one is ekad, which speaks most literally of a compound unity. Instead of using the Hebrew word yakid, which speaks of an absolute unity or singularity. And, and of all places, he refers to Genesis 22 and 2 to, because there the word yakid is used where it says about Isaac. And speaking of Isaac, who was on his way with Abraham, his father, to Mount Moriah, the ekod used here is speaking of the fact that Isaac is Abraham's only son, and his being the heir of the promise. And, and this word means alone, once, one, only. That's the way it is. Now the other passage, David is praying the, where the word yakid is used that he's referring to to try to substantiate his dogma of trinity. Psalm 25, 16, David is praying, Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me. I am desolate and afflicted. And the word yakid is that word desolate. Now that does, that's David. David is yakid. He's desolate. He's alone. So trying to use that word to prove a trinity, my goodness, you're really pulling the straws out of your bale of hay. Now, there are other attempts. For instance, and I, I, let me hurry going here. Some of the other things that he used to try to prove that the word ekod implies or suggests a, trinity, a unity of persons. Uh, he said the, the very first use of ekod Ekod, rather, Ekod, I'm getting them mixed. The very first use of Ekod, which means one, in the, is in the book of Genesis 1 and verse 5. The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the first day. So here is the word, Akid, Ekod. Here I'm doing it again. Ekod, Ekod. Forget that Yakid one. Ekod. And uh, again, the idea of unity, of one flesh making a plurality. Listen now, let me, here, here's something I want to really emphasize if I can get it straight in my mind. He, he's, he's saying that in there in Genesis 1 and 5, the evening and the morning were the first day. They were one. They were, they were one. They were first day. Here is the ekod. The evening and the morning, the two make up the one. The two become, in, in like in chapter 2 and verse 24, Genesis, he speaks about the man and the woman. These twain, these two, shall be one. Ekod. I thought, making a plurality of the two. He speaks about the golden clasp, the holes, the curtains together, the tabernacle, so the tent could be one. Ekod. 
He speaks in Ezekiel chapter 37. He refers to that. The Lord tells Ezekiel to join together two sticks. Remember that in, in chapter 37 of uh, Ezekiel speaking about the dry bones and taking those two sticks and put them together so they become one, referring to Ephraim and Judah or the northern tribes and the southern tribes into one, Echon, speaking again of unity, one stick made up of a plurality, two sticks. I listened, I read that and I began to, my poor friend, you, you are missing it. You're trying to teach us a trinity, and all you're doing is talking about two things. You're saying the morning and the evening is one. Well, where's your other trinity? You've left one of them out. Amen. You're, you're, you're in, in these two sticks. You might need three sticks if you're gonna if you're gonna teach your trinity. Amen. Amen. They're the great I am. The everlasting wonders. Amen. They, they, he never uses the example of three. So he, he's, he's in trouble, isn't he? And I'm in trouble because I got to hush pretty soon. Amen. What time do we usually close? About 10 to 12 or 5 to 12? They're the great I am. No, they're the great trinity, the everlasting trio. They are the giver of peace. They are the eternal wonders, holy counselors. They're Zion's righteous governors. They are the great, they are the great we ams. Jesus, Jesus, thank God. I know I'm laughing, smiling, but I tell you what, when I think about teaching Trinity, I've got to laugh almost, or maybe I shouldn't say it that way. Maybe that's been ir, uh, irresponsible. Maybe I should be weeping. Maybe I should be weeping because when I think of the vast majority of those who have been been in, in, uh, deuced into accepting the dogma of the Trinity and then to take on baptism in the triune formula of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There's no power in that term. Amen. They go down a wet sinner. They come up a wet sinner and they're seeing still in their record on high. But when they're baptized in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, they go down wet, they come up clean. Their sins are gone. Their sins are gone. There's no power in the name Father as far as redemption, as far as cleansing of sin, because, well, I could give you a check if I had one. Would you loan me a check, Brother Keith, on your account? But, uh, no. If I had a check and filled it out to Brother Keith Brown for $1,000, he'd probably want to go to the bank right after church. He might want to say, Brother Walls, would you close a little early so we can go cancel it, uh, uh, go cash it. But if I signed that check 
father, son, and husband. I went to cash a check down here at this little bank one time. Uh, the one had given it to me. They'd put the right number up here, but they put the wrong number down here. And she said, we can't cash that because what's here, if it's $75, down here it's got to say 75 Got to gotta go together. And so I didn't get it cashed. So I could make a $1,000 check to Brother Keith and sign it, father, son, and husband, and, and, and all he could do is use it as a notepad or something or an insert in your book keep you in your page because there's no atoning blood in the father the name the title in the son but again when you're baptized in the name of jesus christ upon repentance of your sins amen amen lastly let me say let me refer one more time to our friend i i wish uh I don't, I'm not going to say that. Um, the one last comment from, from our Trinitarian friend, he said, there is no way that God has the exclusive idea of an absolute singularity. The idea of one God in three persons fits just fine with the term Echad. According to your confused, mixed up, and messed up Theology, that's the way you think it is, but you're wrong. Echad means one. It means absolute one. Not three in one, but one in one. Amen. The three persons does not fit in the word of God. One of these days, we're going to go to glory. You ready? I'm going to close uh, by referring you to the book of Revelation, chapter three, three, chapter four, excuse me, chapter four. Listen to this passage. Of, I'm going to read several verses here, but to me, this is so authentic. It's so impressive concerning what we're trying to talk about today. One God, one of these days, I'm going to see him for myself. As the Lord said to uh, who, who was it he talked to Philip in John 14 when Philip said show us the father and we'll be satisfied and he said the Lord said have, have I been with you so long you don't know who I am when you've seen me you've what you've seen the father you've seen the father anyway beginning with verse 1 after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And notice now, and immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon it like a jasper and a sardine stone. There was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like an emerald. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats. Upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. They had on their heads crowns, crowns of gold. 
And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were even there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the throne again, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion. The second beast like a calf. The third beast had the face as a man. The fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about them. They were full of eyes within. They rest day, not day and night, saying, holy, holy, holy. Believe it or not, there are those that teach like this word, holy, holy, holy. He said, that's, that's the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Holy, holy. Isn't that something? They, I tell you what, they really scratch to try to get their trinity. But they're coming up loser every time. Lord God, Lord God, Lord God Almighty, which was and which is and which is to come. And when those beasts gave, give glory and honor and thanks to that said on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before that said on the throne and worship. That liveth, <laughs> that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou, y'all, no, thou art worthy, O Lord, not lords, but O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure are they are and were created. Thank God for the word of God. Thank God for truth. Thank you for listening to the MPC podcast. We trust that today's message has inspired you, encouraged you, and strengthened you in the Lord. We would like to invite you to join us again by simply subscribing to our podcast and we encourage you to write a review if it has been a blessing to you. Again, you can find us at medorachurch.com to learn more about our ministry.